Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Are you ready for what God has for you today? Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, I know one thing for sure. God wants to do something new in you. There is nothing more exciting than knowing that God is at work, even if we can't see what He's doing and have to wait a while to find out. He is always good, so our lives are safe and secure in His hands, no matter what that new thing is. I'm Chris Voigt, and I have the immense privilege of leading the team here at Dayspring. It certainly keeps me on my toes because that team expends endless energy helping people grow. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that you can come as you. We're just like you, regular people on a journey discovering what God has for us each day, and each day saying yes to becoming like Jesus, one step at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to figure out what your yes is today, and tomorrow, and the next day slowly becoming like Jesus. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey, even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on. This is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These opening words of Genesis in the Old Testament are familiar to most of us. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then at some point, God created light to separate the darkness. Next came our atmosphere as God created the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below, then land and plant life. Day four is the sun, moon, stars, and other heavenly bodies, which also serve to help us understand the concept of time. Day five, he creates the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air. Then came land animals, and at the pinnacle of creation, humankind. Humans are set apart from the rest because we were crafted in the image of God, created to know God, to be in relationship with God. And so it was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in relationship with God and each other until that fateful day when they chose poorly and sin entered creation. The day that changed everything. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, no longer able to eat from the tree of life, which means that the introduction of sin included the introduction of death. Though still crafted in the image of God, we are stuck in these decaying bodies, in a decaying culture, on a decaying planet, 
until death ferries us into our eternity. But even worse than that, the intimate relationship that they had so effortlessly shared with God, with the God of the universe, was instantly cut off as they died spiritually. Dead, but alive. Or maybe dead and dying. We don't know how it worked exactly, but mankind was able to continue, uh, clearly able to continue in some form of relationship with God. Adam's sons, Cain and Abel, brought their offerings, their respective offerings to God. One was accepted and one was not, and as a result, the world experienced the first murder. The next seven and a half chapters of Genesis give us the lineage of Adam, but that isn't the only story of these chapters. Though we aren't told this directly, we can certainly extrapolate that all of mankind knew of God and could make the same choice as Abel when it came to the object of their worship. But time and time again, with few exceptions, man rejected God and made other little g-gods to worship instead. So God started over with Noah and his family. And once again, inarguably, all of mankind knew of God. But history repeats itself, giving man the opportunity for relationship, man rejecting said opportunity, choosing to grapple with the darkness instead of dancing in the light. If we could illustrate this history... It might look something like this. Uh, from the first moments of creation, humankind could be in relationship with the God whose image they bear. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 uh, verses 19 and 20 tells us that mankind then and today knows the truth about God because he has made it obvious. Forever since the world was created, people have seen uh, the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Relationship with God was and is possible. We call this general revelation. That is the churchy word for it. What we need to know for today is that God is and has always been available for relationship for humankind. But instead of pursuing God, mankind has a track record of suppressing the truth that is written on our hearts by burying it in an avalanche of sin and wickedness. Instead of choosing to walk in the light of his glory, we choose the darkness of sin and death. And back in Genesis, we read of only a few exceptions. Abel, until death snuffed out his light. Enoch, until God just beamed him into eternity, and Noah, bringing us to Genesis 12 and the man we know as Abram. We don't know how Abram caught God's attention. He grew up in what was a very pagan part of the world. Maybe his dad, Terah, passed on the knowledge of God to him. Maybe God just liked what he saw when he looked at Abram's heart. We just don't know how it began. But in Genesis chapter 12 and the next few chapters that follow, we see Abraham's relationship and commitment to God deepen as God sets the stage for something new. 
Now, instead of light shining through one individual here or there, God will shine his light through a people group. The people group of Abraham's or Abram's family will, will become the called out people of, of God. Up to this point in history, all of mankind is Gentile. There are no Jews until Abram becomes Abraham in, the co in covenant relationship with God. And the physical proof of the spiritual intimacy that marked Abraham's relationship with God was a little slice in dice in what is arguably man's most intimate place physically. We call that circumcision. Genesis 24.6 reveals God's intention for the nation of Israel. God says, I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as stars in the sky. And I will give them all these lands and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In calling out or claiming the Jews, it was always God's intention to protect the Jewish people from the moral and spiritual corruption that, uh, in the world around them. In essence, he built a wall around them through the law of Moses, which would come in another 500 years or so. It was a wall of protection so they could represent him before the nations through Jesus acting as a bridge for the rest of humanity to enter into relationship with God. In his Sermon on the Mount discourse, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Though Jesus is talking to his followers here, these words also give us a picture of why the Jewish people were set aside in the first place. Light inviting in people who are lost in the dark. But what was meant to be a bridge crumbled and became a barrier instead. And over the course of time, grew into a deep-seated rivalry between those who have God and those who do not, the Jews and the Gentiles. Far worse than any duck or beaver, beaver rivalry, Coke or Pepsi, or in my case, Diet Coke and anything else, Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader, the Montagues versus the Capulets, iPhone versus Android, you get the picture. In fact, instead of seeing themselves as light in the darkness, over time they began to see themselves as light above the darkness. Uh, better than, more righteous than those in the dark. Their separateness created a chasm of bitterness and hatred between the Jews and the non-Jews or the Gentiles. And in the end, they weren't all that different than anyone else. They made their religion their God and ended up stumbling around in the dark like the Gentiles. Although don't tell them that, it wouldn't go over well. Now, at this point, you might be wondering if I know what I'm supposed to be preaching today. Aren't we in a series in Ephesians, which is on the opposite side of the Bible? Yes, I have been on vacation, but I haven't been on vacation that long. Welcome to the third week in our series, Ephesians, Becoming Who You Are. 
And we are working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Though it is in ruins now, its location made the ancient city of Ephesus a cultural, political, religious, and economic hub during the first century. It is located in what is modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea from Greece. Its location and importance gave it a diverse population. And even though it was home to the temple of Artemis, or Diana, depending on whether you were Roman or Greek, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, many other religions were practiced in the city as well. And though there was a Jewish synagogue to serve the Jewish population of the city, most of the city was Gentile, including the Ephesian church. Uh, Of all of the first century churches, we know the most about Ephesus. Uh, The Apostle Paul spent three years headquartered there. Uh, When he left, Priscilla and Aquila continued Paul's work in Ephesus. Apollos, who we know from the church in Corinth, also spent time there. Paul's letters to Timothy were written to Timothy in Ephesus and about the Ephesian church. Uh, We also know that the Apostle John was probably arrested uh, in Ephesus under Domitian's rule and then most likely wrote his New Testament letters and the Gospel of John from Ephesus after his return from exile on the island of Patmos. I think it's safe to say that of all the New Testament churches, Ephesus was the most influential. What happened in Ephesus didn't stay in Ephesus, but flowed through the Ephesian church to the other churches in the region. Uh, Unlike some of his other letters, Paul wasn't writing the church at Ephesus to address any specific problem. Instead, he wanted to encourage them and as he strengthened their understanding of doctrine and the practice of their faith. Because our identity in Christ is under constant assault, he wanted to remind them, remind us, of who we are in Christ and how the people of Christ live. So in Christ, we are a people who have been chosen by God for relationship with God through Jesus. And we have chosen that relationship. The line between choosing and being chosen, which we call predestination versus free will, is one of the great mysteries of God which scholars have argued about for two centuries. Both are true. We are chosen and we choose, somehow. And in that choice, as we learned from Pastor Michelle, we are a people who have been adopted into the family of God and given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we belong to him. Period. End of story. We never have to wonder whether or not we are the people of God. No matter how we act, no matter how far we wander, we can stand secure in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when the enemy of our souls whispers doubts about our standing with God, we can just tell him, back off, dude. You're the one who has something to worry about. Or something like that. Bottom line is, You didn't do anything to earn your salvation, which means you can't do anything to unearn your salvation. We are now and will always be children of God in good standing with God. That's just who we are. And as we learned from Pastor John last week, we are people who have had the curse reversed. Once we were dead spiritually and dying physically, now we are more alive than we understand spiritually 
And though we are still in uh, physically dying bodies, we are simply waiting for our new bodies that come with eternal warranties. And again, we didn't do anything for that life. Jesus did it all. And his grace gives it to us, which allows us to do that which we were born to do. Live in freedom for the glory of our king, doing the works he prepared for us before the beginning of time. That's just who we are. Now, if you were here for our last series, you know what these are. These are group identity statements. Paul is defining who we are. But that's not all, folks. That just brings us up to where John left off last week in Ephesians chapter 2. So picking up in verse 11, Paul writes, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Uh, from antiquity, you Gentiles weren't a part of the family of Abraham, those who were called out of humankind for protection by God, for the purpose of representation for God, which would not have been a big deal if the Jews had understood why they were called out by God. But instead, they decided that their calling must have meant that they were better than the rest of humankind, more righteous, more deserving, etc., 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 all because of that little slice and dice. That it was the slice and dice that made the difference with God, not the heart. And in so living, made the Gentiles outsiders. So, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Uh, what's interesting is that the Jewish focus on, on the external was supposed to be a physical representation of an internal orientation. It was symbolic. Aditi has a tattoo on her wrist that is a heart wrapped with a, a, a key around it. And my name is on the key. It is a symbol of our relationship. It isn't our relationship, right? It's just a tattoo. What the Jews did with their symbol was make it the relationship instead of the symbol of their relationship with God and actually ended up making themselves outsiders as well. But that's another part of the story. And again, don't tell them that. <laughs> but for the, the Gentile believers, that meant that before Jesus, they were outside in several ways. Verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. So first they were outside without Christ. They didn't know anything about Christ. Most of them probably worshipped Diana and any number of other little g gods as well. They were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. So second, they were also outside without citizenship. God had chosen the Jews and built them into a nation, complete with laws and blessings. That was not true for any other people or nation. And you did not know the covenant promises that God, that you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. So third, the Jews, that the Gentiles were outside living without covenants like the nation of Israel had. 
These covenants outlined the blessings God would grant to the Jews if they lived up to their part of the covenant and the curses if they didn't. That the Jewish nation was essentially a captured nation ruled by Rome tells you that they didn't live up to their part. But without these covenants, the Gentiles were aliens and strangers, and the Jews never let them forget it. Many Pharisees would pray daily, Oh God, I, thanks, I give thanks that I am a Jew, not a Gentile. You lived in this world without God. Uh, someone in that day had said that it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. There were little g gods aplenty. No Gentile man or woman, regardless of how they lived, knew the true God. Which meant that they were also without hope. Uh, we know from historians that a great cloud of hopelessness uh, permeated the ancient world. Uh, the, apart from truth, philosophies are empty. Traditions are disappearing. And religions offered no power for, the, for people to face life or death. Uh, people longed for even a shred of hope, but found none. It's important to note that in all of this withoutness, the spiritual plight of the Gentiles was the consequences of their rejection of the one true God and their willful sin. Uh, remember, from the beginning of time, God has made himself known and mankind has rejected him. In his commentary, Warren Wiersbe says, Warren Wiersbe says that religious history is not a record of man having many gods and gradually discovering one true God. Rather, it is the sad story of man knowing the truth about God and deliberately turning away from it. We saw this truth in the opening chapters of Genesis. Long before God chose Abraham, all of mankind knew of God, but very few pursued God. It was through Abraham, that the general revelation of God in creation became the specific revelation of God through his word given to the Jews, then and ultimately uh, through Jesus, the Savior of the world. So before Jesus, there was separation, alienation. But, Paul continues in verse 13, but, now this is a very important but, Throughout the writings of the New Testament, uh, we can see this tug of war between Jews and Gentiles playing out in the church and causing dysfunction within the church. It was probably the biggest roadblock to unity in the first century church. It's, it's just hard to lay aside prejudice that has seeped into your DNA over about 2,000 years. But something happened when Jesus conquered death Something that the first century church struggled to understand. And honestly, Christians have done the same for about 2,000 years. It's not all that hard to understand, really. But we have a special way of taking the simple things of God and making them difficult. But Jesus didn't conquer death to move Gentiles from the humankind circle to the Jewish circle. 
He's not playing some cosmic game of risk where he moves people around the board and the circle with the most people and it wins. In fact, if you are in either of these two circles, you lose. He didn't conquer death to bring us Gentiles under the old covenant that began with Abraham, making us Jews. Jesus conquered death to establish a new circle. And this new circle is different than the other two. This isn't an upgrade like my iPhone just upgraded from iOS 15 to iOS 16. It isn't a new and improved version of Judaism. No, this, is, this circle has a completely new operating system. And in this circle, you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of, of Christ. This is a circle of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to bring together again. It is the greatest peace mission in history because Christ himself has brought peace to us. For whatever reasons, we choose sin and death on our own. So Christ did the work for us and made a way for us to have life. Now you may have not, may or may not have noticed that up to this point, Paul has used the word you as he's talked about and to the Gentiles. Here he changes to us and we. Now he is addressing both the Gentile and the Jew. Sin is the greatest separator in the world. It separates us from God as seen when Adam and Eve sinned and suffered separation as a consequence of that choice. Obviously, Christ reconciles that relationship. But because we not only sin against God, but against each other, sin also separates us from each other. As far back as Cain and Abel, Try as we might for peace among men. The world has never known peace. We can't even get external peace to last for long, let alone internal peace. But in Christ, there is both vertical and horizontal reconciliation for those in this new circle. Christ united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. So before Jesus, the differences between Jews and Gentiles had been ordained by God to create and protect a pathway to salvation through Jesus. Without the Jews, Jesus would not have been possible as a solution to bridge our relationship with God. But after Jesus conquered death, God intended those differences to be erased forever by bringing together or reconciling those two groups, which was so hard for the early church to understand. For centuries, Jews and Gentiles had had different ways of dressing, different diets, different laws, different religious rituals. But the moment Gentiles started receiving salvation on the same terms as the Jews, trouble started brewing. Now, was Christianity just a new and improved version of Judaism? The Jews thought it should be. Or was it something different, which is what Paul was teaching the Gentiles? Now, we know this now, 
it was something new. Jesus calls us out of our old circle into this new one. For both the Jew and the Gentile, our identity now, who we are now, whether we live it out well or not, trumps our old identity. The old law no longer applies at all. Christ's resurrection fulfilled the old law, making way for our new man or woman who finds his or her identity as a part of the church, the body of Christ. The righteousness of God, which was revealed by the old law, still stands. God hasn't changed. Holiness is still the standard. But for us, holiness is fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. Now, the law has served its purpose and moved aside for something new. And with that new comes our new identity. As Paul writes to the Galatian church, before the way of faith was available, uh, the, the, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. In much the same way that an orphan might have a guardian to protect them. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promises to Abraham belongs to you. So our, our new identity supersedes our old identity as Jew or Gentile. And lest there be any confusion, that applies to every other relationship you can think of as well. Men and women, slave and free, red and yellow, black and white. We are all precious in his sight and equal and one body, the body of Christ. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Our decision to follow Christ moves us from our old circle of death, whichever one it is, into our new circle of life. And in that circle, our war, which is really what sin is, our war with God finds peace, giving us a new identity that is secure, giving us new life. And besides peace, reconciliation brings us unity, making us one big happy family. That is the church. The head of the church is, uh, of this new man, the church, is Jesus, who brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. We have complete reconciliation. Now, in these few verses, Paul has repeated the word one 
several times to emphasize our unity through Christ. Although, depending on your translation, the, the wording may be a little different. In verse 14, Christ has made both the Jew and the Gentile one. In verse 15, he is creating in himself one new people, or one new man, short for mankind. In verse 16, he has reconciled both groups into one body. And in verse 18, he has given us one spirit. All spiritual distance and division have been overcome through Christ, vertically and horizontally. In this oneness, we find our identity. And in the closing verses of this chapter, Paul paints three pictures of how this oneness is expressed in the church. First, we are all citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 19, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. While Israel was God's chosen nation before Jesus, the consequence of their, uh, their rejection of Jesus was that this honor was removed from them. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 1, 21. Uh, the, to the Pharisees, he said, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce proper fruit. This new nation is the church. Uh, Peter affirms this truth in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He says that we are not like those who have rejected God. Instead, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into this wonderful light. And as a holy nation, like Israel once was, we are being protected by God, assuming the role of bridge for those seeking to know God. Though in saying this, don't think for a moment that God is done with Israel. Their story is still being written. And prophecies about the end times uh, uh, prove that Israel's story is not over. And this is bonus information for you Bible nerds. Uh, in the Old Testament, nations were recognized by their descent from Noah through his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is saved. That is the Ethiopian treasurer. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, later becoming known as the Apostle Paul, a descendant of Shem is saved. And then in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles in the household of the Roman soldier Cornelius, descendants of Japheth, are saved. All three symbolic of God's enduring love for all of the nations through all of time, including Israel. Along with our national identity as the people of God through Jesus, we are also members of God's family. Uh, here's the rest of verse 19. It's pretty simple. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. This elevates our identity. It's possible to just blend in with the crowd when you are a nation. There are lots of us, but families are much more personal. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that we are God's household. We have been adopted into the same family, giving us the same father. 
And as members of God's household, that gives each of us rights and responsibilities. We have a role to fulfill. We are called to bring glory to our Father. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says that we are to treat each other as family. And no, not the dysfunctional families that most of us have experience with, but good, healthy, loving families. You've heard me say this before. You cannot become a fully developed, deeply rooted follower of Jesus apart from Christ. That's Apart from the body of Christ, that's how important your church family is to your spiritual development. It's crucial. The church isn't a building. Lots of people have a hard time understanding this. The church isn't a building. It's a family living life together on mission. So we are a nation made up of one big family. And in these last verses, we are stones in God's temple. Verse 20. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Okay, now this illustration might be a little harder for us to imagine, but not for Paul's original audience. For nearly a thousand years, the temple had been the focal point of Israel. Solomon was responsible for building the first temple, which was uh, far more magnificent than we can imagine. In modern day numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars went into building the, the temple. It was a grand tribute to a glorious God, the dwelling place of God, before it was destroyed by Babylon. And then a new smaller version of the temple was rebuilt after their return from exile. And then in the time of Herod, before Jesus was born, a third temple was rebuilt. Some say it was the most elaborate, though I think it would be hard to compete with Solomon's temple. Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So it was still a symbol of the nation of Israel at the time that Paul penned these words to the Ephesians. And though the Ephesian Gentiles would never be allowed in Herod's temple because of their Gentileness, they would be familiar with their own temple of Diana. With the birth of the church, God's dwelling place moved from the physical temple to the body of Christ. He dwells in the hearts of those who have trusted Christ and in the church collectively, as we see in these verses. Jesus Christ is the foundation and the chief cornerstone. Our cornerstone binds the entire structure together. Everything that we've talked about today is possible because of Jesus, our chief cornerstone. And on this foundation, in alignment with the cornerstone, this new temple is framed together by the body of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, joined together so much so that every part accomplishes the purposes that God has in mind. We are built together for God's dwelling. You are a stone, I am a stone, and though it is true that each, of, each, of, each stone is a mini temple of God, Together, we make up the temple of God. 
Now, most of what we've talked about today isn't new to most of us. It's easy for us to acknowledge that we are the body of Christ and that, God's, uh, that God dwells in us. We might even say that we agree that we are family. But our Western ideology of individualism makes this much harder to live out. We live in a much more me-centric version of Christianity. We're quick to acknowledge that the church isn't a building when we want to be let off the hook for something, but we don't really embrace our role in the collective dwelling place of God. Church is much more disposable to us. It's fine for others, but less so for us. I was talking to an old friend a few weeks ago and he told me, yeah, I don't do church anymore. And it broke my heart. The New Testament positions the church as fundamental to our identity. We don't know who we are apart from each other. We can't know who we are apart from each other. The New Testament assumes that every follower of Christ will be a productive member of the local church. Period. End of story. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity from the Bible's perspective. We are part of the church universal as it is expressed locally. This is how we live out our union with Christ visibly. Together. Loving deeply in community. It is an incredible gift from God that we get to do this life together. We face our highs and lows together. We change the world together. Together, we represent God far more powerfully and effectively than any one of us can do alone. And that deserves a rousing amen. We get to do this life together. Uh, Paul Patterns, uh, his letters generally, uh, as in starting with doctrine before moving on to application. And so we're still on that part of Ephesians, the doctrine part of Ephesians, but that doesn't mean we can't find some application. So let me encourage you to consider how you live out this truth in our community. How aligned is your stone to the cornerstone, first and foremost? And then with the other stones in community, have you been taking a Lone Ranger approach to your Christian journey? Or are you growing in community intentionally? Pray about what God might be calling you to do or change. And then obey. Let's pray. Father, here in these moments, it's possible probable that in the room here watching online that there are um, people who have never chosen to follow you who are still living in the darkness of their of that old circle who need to make a decision today to step into the new circle of life that Jesus came to give us all if that describes you today, I, I want you to know that, that it's an, actually a, a pretty easy process to decide to follow Christ. You just have to decide to follow Christ. You just surrender and say, God, my way hasn't worked up to this point. 
I've been in the dark. I want to be in the light. And I will follow you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That part isn't hard. We just walk away from sin and choose to walk in freedom in community. If that's you today, I just want to invite you to make that decision. It's the most important decision that you could ever make in your life. It matters now and for eternity. It won't magically save whatever situation that you're in. It just means that you'll have Jesus walking with you in that situation. And you'll have family members walking with you. All of a sudden, family members that you didn't know. Father, for the rest of us, we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, um, have our highs and lows with how we walk in community together. So just give us wisdom as we think about how to live out our calling the way you have called us to live together. Give us the courage to step, in, step out in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus.